0: that um, you're not nervous tonight, because if you've read chapter 3, it gets kind of personal. And when it comes to uh, knowing how to prefer one another and how that applies to the body of believers, I promise you I'm not going to intentionally step on your toes. Harold did ask me tonight, how many toes I'm going to step on? I, I hope not too many. That being said, um, yes, he points out some very interesting uh, things, and I'm going to go through briefly some of these. But really, when I, when I began to, to look at the subject and ask myself, you know, how do I, what angle would I take on this? What does it mean to prefer one another? How do we as a church, if we love our church, how do we learn to defer? So in deference, how do we look at someone else and value or submit our own opinions, our own wishes, our own desires, and submit that to a fellow believer, a brother in Christ, to bring unity to the body? And there's a couple things I want to look at and a couple angles I want to take tonight. One, make sure all this flows good. Just give you an idea of what we'll be looking at tonight, the outline first, the introduction, kind of defining what we're talking about, showing deference, what it means. Then, why is it important? Why are we talking about this? Why is it important within the church family to talk about deference and showing deference and preferring one another? Then how does it impact the body of Christ? This is some of the things he addresses in the book. How does this impact the body of Christ in a positive way, in a negative way, when it's applied, when it's not applied? And I'm hoping to leave you with some questions that you can ask yourself to see how, how to apply this to your life. How do I get to where I need to be? In other words, how do I get there? How, how do I get to the point where I know how to show deference? I know how to prefer one another. And then bring this to, to a conclusion. So showing deference is the ability to submit to another's wishes or opinions or Governance. How to prefer one another. There are two texts I'm going to look at. One, I'm going to look at First Peter. So I invite you to turn in the text now, First Peter. We're going to look at different passages, yes, in chapter 5, but also working up to chapter 5. And then look at Paul's letter to the Philippians and see his input on this question. What it means to, to submit, what it means to be submissive. And really, boy, if we could apply—I mean, if I could apply some of these truths to my life, what a, what a difference it would make! And I trust that tonight, it's not just a matter of walking through some passages and verses. About the end, having—I think we'll see that there's a each and every one of us has a layer that we can apply to our lives and make that effective in the in the body of Christ. So we know when you come to First Peter. He's going to be addressing the the church in the midst of suffering and persecution. He's going to bring their attention in the beginning of of his letter. He's going to bring their attention to their living hope, the risen Savior, to their inheritance, uh, reserved in heaven for you. He goes through this. And then he goes on to encourage them. Chapter 1, verse 15, he talks about be holy in all your conduct. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he talks about abstaining from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So he's walking through a church that's going through persecution and tribulation. He begins by exhorting them, by encouraging them, showing them what they have in common, bringing hope, showing them the hope that they have. Then he encourages them to walk in a godly fashion. And then in verse 13, based on this information, based on this knowledge, he begins verse 13 by saying, Therefore... Because of this, or or knowing this, knowing these truths, Peter's going to tell them to submit. Submit to your government. Submit to your masters, wives towards your husbands. Uh, Submit to your elders. Submit to your government, verses 13 through 16, for the Lord's sake. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Submit towards your masters. Verse 18 through 25. This is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Wives towards your husbands, that they may be won by the conduct of their wives. Towards your elders. Chapter 5. Now this is, we're going to look at these verses and read these part of the verses. So he's going to, in verse 5, and then of course verse 6 as well. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. He links this thought of submissiveness towards one another with humility in verse 5, and then with the ability to humble yourselves before God, and then, of course, how it affects our relationship with, with the Lord. A couple of thoughts here. One showing deference is about having an attitude and spirit of submissiveness. I think we're going to see through the text, and we're going to see through our own lives. This is not something that comes naturally. It's not something that comes easy. It's not something that we welcome. I think it's very easy to say if you've had children in your life that children don't naturally submit to their siblings. They don't naturally say, hey, why don't you take this? No, why don't you go ahead? There's just, man does not naturally submit. He doesn't naturally say, hey, no, you can have it your way. No, they really want it my way. And that's Burke King, of course, has helped us with that. Have it your way. And we live our lives that way. Submissiveness, showing deference, is about having an attitude and spirit of submissiveness. Unfortunately, too often our notion of submission is required. We feel like it only is required in relation to those in authority over us. Meaning usually we see submission as how does it pertain with someone that's in authority over us. So if they're in authority over us, well then of course we'll naturally submit to that. But if they're not, and we consider them our equal, then we don't necessarily step in there with the expectation that we need to submit to their desires, to their preferences. But, as Peter is going to point out, Christian submission goes beyond obedience to those in authority over us. He begins there. He begins with the the government, with the masters. But he goes through all the way to the end and he completes his thought by saying that submissiveness is applied to each and a one of us towards one another. The believer is first subject to God, naturally, and then Christians are mutually subject to one another. So showing deference is about having an attitude and spirit of submissiveness. And showing deference is a heart matter. It's not a matter of obligation. We're not talking about working the letter of the law. We're talking about having an attitude and a heart. It's not. It doesn't fall into some form of obligation. Again, many times our spirit is... Shaved in such a way that we want to know who do I answer to? We want to know the famous chain of command, who is in charge, and who do I submit to. It goes much more beyond that. We're not talking about a chain of command. It's a heart matter, not an obligation. A testimony to a humble spirit. It's a testimony to a humble spirit, not some spiritual law when we need to abide to. See, the world's going to see submission as Compliance with the law. But biblical submission and deference seeks to satisfy the spirit of the law. See, many times we talk about, you know, what's the law and what's the spirit of the law. Well, we understand the law. When it says 55 miles an hour, it means 55 miles an hour, even if we're going 60. We understand what the law means. There's no real spirit of the law there. But showing submissiveness addresses the question of the spirit of the law, not our obligation one towards another. And we're going to see that if we walk into the idea of submissiveness and how do we show deference towards a fellow believer, if we simply want to operate within the letter of the law, we're not going to fulfill and be recipients of God's grace. We're going to be simply limiting ourselves to obedience. It is the difference between asking how much I must give versus how much I can give. It's the difference between saying, How must I serve versus how can I serve? I mean, having a spirit of of, of deference is walking into the spirit of the law saying, What, not what must I do, but what can I do? Now, every one of us, every time you walk through these, of course, I'm thinking, Wow, how would the church be revolutionized? How would the church be different if each and every one of us, myself included, naturally walk into this saying, It's not a matter of saying, What's my obligation this week, but what can I do this week? How the Christian church, how the church would be would be different. Submission, as the world sees it, is mainly a matter of authority, while biblical submission is a matter of priority. In other words, when the world sees submission, they're talking about who's the authority we must submit to. When we're talking about Christian submission, we're talking about which priority I want to submit myself to. Which means there is a place and time for submitting to someone else, not because there's an obligation there, not because the letter of the law is there, but because there's another priority that that goes way beyond that one that will, makes me want to submit. One of the classic examples that comes to mind to me is whenever the Bible addressed us, should we, should we go to court with another believer? I might have the legal right to sue a believer. I might have every legal standing. The lawyer might say you should do it, you must do it because they've wronged you. But what does the Scripture say? There is another priority in place that might be necessary for me to say, you know, I'm going to suffer loss in this case and not exert my right and exert this claim. Putting the interests of others ahead of our own, applying submission only to earthly authorities, as government and masters, as Peter describes, limits the grace of God in our lives. The grace of God applies to our life when we go beyond masters and governments and we apply submissiveness and preference one towards another in the areas that demand grace, not obligation. Submission, as the world sees it, seeks to minimize our dependence on our dependence on others, while biblical submission recognizes and values our dependence on others and surrenders our independence. The reason why I'm trying to contrast this because many times our, our notion of what it means to submit, we have many preconceived ideas because of the way the world has formatted our minds what it means to submit to something or submit to someone particularly. Submission and biblical submission Recognizes and values our dependence one with or towards another. So, why is it important? I mean, can we just not come and enjoy the preaching of the word? Is that not sufficient? Can we not just come and sing and worship the Lord together? And is that not sufficient? Do we have to come and, and submit one towards another to, to for us to live the, the church experience and, and to live our lives as believers? I think we're going to see it's extremely important. One of the things that makes the church uniquely beautiful is its ability to unite people from all different walks of life. And I think that's one thing that does attract the world. I mean, when you think about the world, when they unite around something, they reunite, they unite around a passion. I mean, you're going to have... You know, UVA fans or Virginia Tech fans or whatever it is. You know, when I went to go see a Virginia Tech football game, you're, you're surrounded by people dressed in the same color, acting just as crazy and everything else. Wow, they're, they're there for the same, they're passionate about the same thing. What on earth brings a church together? I mean, we have people from all different walks of life. We have poor and rich. We have smart and not so smart. We have Virginians and West Virginians. And I, don't, I didn't mean that those two be back to back, but I'm just kind of, it just, just happened that way. We have peoples from all stages and walks in life. But the beauty of the body of Christ is that, that, that ability to submit one to another. You know, I know in some, in some cultures, like in the Nepali culture where there's a caste system, it's a different challenge for believers of a higher caste to submit themselves to a lower caste. Now, in our society, we don't really have caste system in that same way, but the beauty of the church coming together because we all proclaim the name of Christ. Because we're all moved at the thought of the cross. Because we share the same passion for our Savior, the same love and fear of a sovereign creator God. That's what brings us together. Because we have the same hope in a risen Savior The same long-awaited yearning for the return of our King. So those are the things that bring the church together. The other things that we have in our lives are things that, yes, we have our preferences. But what a beauty it is when we're able to submit those to someone else's preferences. When we're able to put those aside so that the body of Christ might be strong and be united. If you turn with me in, in Philippians, looking at Paul's description of this, what I like about Peter peter takes you through submission, through different phases of submission, and ultimately comes to submissiveness towards one another and the grace of God in, in that relationship. But what I like about Paul in chapters 1 and 2 is he's, he's going to now bring into play not just what it means to submit one to another, but... The ultimate submissiveness is going to be dying to self, and he's going to present that, and we're going to look through some of those principles as well. If you were to walk through Philippians and you saw this in the perspective of someone that is uh, submitting, you might say, it begins in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, you're bondservants of Jesus Christ. The first picture he's going to give us here is submits how the believer... In dying of self, submits to Christ. Christ as his bond servant. Submission to others begins with us being submitted to Christ. That's where it begins. Verses, chapter 1, verse 7, verses 12 through 18 as well, it says, submits his freedom for the sake of the gospel. Verse 20, he submits his expectations and hope so that Christ might be magnified, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, Submit to the point of death. Death is the ultimate submission. We're going to look at that in our, last, in our last chapter. Chapter 1, verse 27. Submit steadfast in one spirit, one mind, one love, one accord, one mind. Again, he repeats in chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 5, verse 11. Submit as Christ did. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. We submit as Christ submitted. And he puts that example before us to follow. And then that last part, I'm looking in just verses 12 through 18, he talks about submitting willfully. You do this even in my absence, you continue doing so of your own volition. Chapter 2, verse 3, and I'll just read this one verse. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. You know, in in the limited time I have, you know, usually when you start out these studies, you're thinking I don't know I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have forty minutes or whatever time I have, and next you know you've got twelve pages of notes and you've got to come back the other way and start breaking it back down in more details. As you walk through the two chapters, it's it's beautiful to see his picture of submissiveness through trials through ultimately following the example of Christ who submitted himself to the will of the Father, who came down upon earth and set the example for us as one, of course, died for us. As I walk through this, I see a few things. One, submission is the key to unity and harmony in human relationships. Submission is the key to unity and harmony in human relationships. It's true for the Godhead, it's true in marriage, it's true in any relationship. And yes, even in the church, submission is the basis for unity. The ability to submit one to another. Submission is at the core of man's relationship with Christ. Every time man refuses to submit to God in the Word, what happens? He gets himself in trouble. He finds himself in trouble and he finds himself on the end of judgment, on from God, And so it is today. Submitting to one another is evidence of a life submitted to God and submitted to His Word. As we learn to submit one towards another and put aside our preferences, we're going to see when is that necessary for the cause of the gospel, of course, but when we do that, it's evidence of a life submitted to God. Isn't it amazing how the world sees... Submissiveness as a weakness. I mean, if you when, when someone is challenged, I remember a neighbor once complained about something, and it's like, "Oh, you're not going to let them do that, are you? You're not going to let them say that about you." In other words, you, you've got to respond. You can't just let them say those things. Well, of course, there's a natural, there's a, there's a proper way of responding to things. But what I'm saying is that submissiveness is is evidence because there's nothing in you that naturally wants to submit. It's at the core of, our, of man's relationship with Christ. I put down here that submission is the cure for legalism. See, people by nature don't want to submit. If my children do what is told of, what I ask of them, basically if I ask the kids to put the dishes up, that's obedience. It's not submissiveness. It's when they go beyond and try to please me, by acting, maybe wiping the counter, maybe sweeping the floor. Now that's submissiveness. See, when whenever we act out in submissiveness, there is no longer a need for legalism. For the guidelines that tell us how I should act or not act. Because we're showing such deference one for another that we're acting it out in a much greater and deeper way. A healthy church does not live by the letter of the law, but rather by willfully submitting one to another. A healthy church, and part of the things he's describing in the book a little bit later on, he'll describe things, you know, self-centeredness. How is self-centeredness evident? When the church simply fulfills its obligations, it's not acting out in submissiveness when it's simply doing what it needs to pay the bills, when it's simply doing what it needs to keep the, the car running, when it's simply doing what it needs to keep the ministry going, that's not a church that is healthily engaged in submissiveness, serving one another and preferring one another. It's a church that's being obedient, fulfilling obligations, but oh how far it is from where it could be and what it could produce. Submission is a fundamental ingredient of the believer's spiritual life. It's interesting to see that, you know, he talks about the sanctifying process. You know, as I strive to be more like Christ, at no other time do I better exemplify Christ financial difference when I put someone else before myself now I know in the church there are many ways we can serve there are many things we can be obedient in doing we can serve in children's ministries and I'm sure pastor Reed is thankful when people volunteer for children's ministries we could certainly fulfill our obligation by by putting our ties in the offering but submission is a fundamental ingredient of our Spiritual walk of our process of sanctification. And at no other time do I better exemplify Christ than when I show deference and when I put someone else before myself. Now, I'm going to say something that might be here a little bit more controversial, so I want to step on a few toes, but nicely. And you have the right to disagree. But giving up my preferences for others and submitting myself to others is crucial for the church if we're going to think corporately and not individually. Giving up my preferences for others and submitting myself to others is crucial for the church if we're going to think corporately and not individually. Church votes are often the most divisive things a church can do. I mean, everything's fine until we've got to vote on something. I mean, as long as we're keeping the thing going and, and we're not asking to make any decisions, then, then we just keep on going for the ride. But the moment we have to have a church vote on something, then, then we have to take position and we're asked people to evaluate, to pray about it, give, to seek counsel and make a decision There is nothing more encouraging and powerful than a unanimous vote for a church family. And when you see the church, and you see a voting item, and you see 100% voted for it, there there is great encouragement in that. Because it shows the church's ability to vote on something and come together and unite around a decision that needs to be made. If a church vote is seen simply as an act of individual expression and not an opportunity to affirm corporate unity then it often divides along preference lines. I remember as a young missionary getting ready to go out the church voting sometimes on the items that I was involved in because I was in it was either a Christmas offering, something that implicated me. I remember how I felt going to see afterwards the voting items and to see who voted, I mean, voted no. And even if 120 people voted yes, the two that voted no or the two that abstained, you're sitting there thinking, what, why did they abstain? Why did it say no? Now, I know, I know the, the reason that goes behind it. I mean, and why vote? Voting should be something that is healthy for the church when it's done in the right way, in the proper way, and it's done well. But if voting becomes a situation where we're voting individually and we're willing to use the voting item to manifest our preferences, then inevitably it will divide and weaken the church. So, yes, learning to prefer one another, submitting one to another, is vital to the church. And the voting part is certainly one area that brings that out. Is it difficult? I mean, is it difficult to submit? Of course it is. I mean, seeing if I move my. I wrote up here, you know, it's difficult. Why? Because we want to be right. We need to be right. We crave to be right. We hate to be wrong. <laughs> my wife teases me about that a lot. You know, I'm really wrong. It's just not my fault. She, she just says, "You never wrong, are you?" I says, "Well, I mean, it's happened." What can I say? I mean, I can't just be wrong, just to be wrong. I mean, we we had this need to be heard. We had. It's amazing the craving man has to be right, to be heard, to be valued. I mean, we have this wicked flesh that keeps on kicking us, and every time something comes up, we want, to, we want to speak out. We've got to voice our opinion. You know, we, we, we want to show why we don't agree with. Or It's amazing how that is constantly a present pressure. It's so, it's so hard for man to be humble, and in doing so, to show preference to someone else. It is not surprising that in the text with Peter and Paul, we see that submission is tied to humility. Peter does, he says, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Paul does when he says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I thought of one illustration here, and you've probably, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just what I've experienced. Maybe you've experienced this as well. You decide to go out and eat as a family. That's a good idea, right? Until you, in all naivete, you decide to ask the dumb question, where should we go? <laughs> Why on earth? And, of course, you know, I could have just made the command decision and say we're going here. Inevitably, I did that. I made that mistake. I drove the girls' basketball team, middle school, to Roanoke to play a game on the way home. Where do you guys want to stop? Whoo! mistake. Thirteen girls who decide where they want to eat. No one agreed. So in the car, here's how the, the argument develops. Okay, so where, where you want to go? I want chicken. I don't want chicken. I just go Chick-fil-A. Oh, I just had Chick-fil-A. And it goes on and on. But next, you know, what you see developing the conversation is the kids and the adults. We're no longer arguing about really where we're going to eat. Very quickly, it turns into. Who's going to get their way? I mean, is that hamburger really that big of a difference? I mean, it's a hamburger. I mean, if it comes to Burger King or Wendy's, it's still a hamburger. And next thing you know, the human side of us sticks its head out, and you can see the argument is no longer about where they really want to eat. It's who's going to get the right to choose where we're going to eat. Boy, take it from there and try to say, let's show deference, children try to teach that lesson at that point in time, and you're, you're bound to not get very far. You know, as, as simplistic as that might be, how many times have I found myself in the same type of situation where I've been working with a church person, it's like they were arguing about a decision, and at the end of the day, it no longer was about really what we're going to do, it was about who was going to get their way in this matter. I think they even forgot what they were arguing about. And if you hear of these silly stories about a church splitting over what color carpet, it's not because they really cared about what color carpet it was going to be. It's because somewhere along the line, someone said, no, it's, it's my turn to get my way. And someone was not willing to show deference and say, listen, it doesn't matter for the cause of Christ. So how does, how does all this impact the body of Christ. A healthy church is going to develop a spirit of humility where we serve one another we put aside our preferences for the sake of another. A church united around preferences and not around Christ and his gospel will inevitably grow weak. There are many weak churches in America because they've gathered around preferences and not around the gospel and not around truth. It reminds me of the French royalty that decided that to maintain the pure royal line, how are we going to do that? Well, you marry within your own. Before they understood DNA. You know <laughs> no way. I was talking about royalty here. <laughs> what happened? Because they tried to have an ingrown breeding system to where they can maintain the purity of their line, they create in reality just the opposite illness, weakness, defects, and they didn't even understand what they were doing. Yes, whenever we don't agree with someone else, we could probably go down the street or someone else and find someone that might agree with that particular preference. I doubt you'll find someone who agrees with all your preferences. But they might agree with that one for a time. But as a church, and the church in America, if you travel the world, you'll understand the church in America, yes, we have a lot of churches. One reason why we have so many churches is because we've divided up in so many different preferences. When you've done that, you've weakened the church. You haven't strengthened the church. You've weakened the church. Because now we're gathered around preferences, not around sound biblical truth not around the gospel. And in doing so, we haven't done the church a favor. Now, in, in the book, he goes through self-serving members and what they look like. I'm not going to go through his whole list. He talks about worship wars. Spend time in meetings. He gives his whole list. of, uh, And it's, it's healthy to go through this. And even though you might say, well, I don't agree with that. Others are like, well, yeah, maybe that's an issue. And, and I'm not going to go over that list. But I want to go rather over a few things that perhaps, perhaps a few questions that we could ask ourselves to see if a position is mere preference or something that I should not negotiate. And here's some of the things that perhaps I should ask myself whenever I find myself um, butting heads with somebody over a preference and knowing when to let go. I just put down a few things for myself here. One, does it divide or does it unite, the brethren? Now, of course, you've got to unite around the gospel. I understand that, and there's going to be a divisive nature of Scripture, but you better, you better make sure that if we divide over something, that is because the Scripture divides it, not us. I mean, I've, I've seen many people divide in the in, in, in desire of, of, of purity and reality. They were dividing out of their own desires, not because the gospel mandated it. So, is this issue, does it divide us, or does it unite the brothers? Because there's a stern warning against those who divide the brethren. I don't want to be on that side of things. So if I find myself defending a preference that starts dividing the brethren, I better step back and think twice about what I'm doing. Does it advance or does it limit the kingdom? Does it have eternal or temporal value? I mean, is it something that has some eternal redeeming value to it or is it something that's not going to have any eternal consequence? Does it advance or does it hinder the gospel? The last one I put down here, it says, does it help me be more Christ-like or does it keep me from being more Christ-like? So how do I get to where I need to be? Wow, there's just, in this one truth of dying a self, We Remember here and I think it was uh, Doctor Robertson gave an example of a, and and was in church and a visitor came and they were sitting down, you know, they're sitting down right there where they shouldn't be because this other couple always sits there. And that person, Doctor Robertson's given the story, says that person came to him afterwards complaining. I mean, Ashton James always sits right there and this other unconscious visitor sat in his place. <laughs> Doctor Robertson says, I looked at the lady and says, Ma'am, have you ever heard of dying to self? Dying to self is one of the most liberating experiences, one of the most life-changing truths one can apply to his life. Learning to let it go and let it die, let go of that grip and letting God handle things is such a, a defining moment in the life of a believer when we learn to die to self. I put a quote here that I thought, wow, was real... I love love the way he words it. He says, if one no longer has life, they are said to no longer exist. The essence of death is the absence of life. Therefore, when one dies, one ceases to exist. Now, let's carry this over. Let's carry over that argument into the spiritual realm. When someone spiritually dies to self, self ceases to exist. That is, self is no longer the reason for one's existence. It is no longer about his own will or happiness because he is no longer the center of his own universe. Wow. I wish I could apply that one a little better to my life. Whereas the world, when Paul says in Philippians, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a... So much... So much truth carries in that one verse. The world's philosophy is live for self. God says, "Die to self." It's the nature of man. It's my nature to want things my way. When things don't go as I planned, when it rains on my parade, when someone said something unbecoming, when I get turned down for the promotion I knew I deserved, whatever it, it is, it bothers us. It disturbs me. I'd even get angry. What what joy to learn! What it means—the secret of a joy-filled life, as a believer in life—is learning to die to self. In dying to the self-life, I put down here actually in my notes. I put the selfie life because I mean I guess that's more modern now. It's not just a self-life; it's the selfie life. Isn't it amazing that that's our our life now? Selfies. But in dying to the self life, we discover an abundant life. It's always, isn't it always amazing how Scripture is usually the flip side of what the world teaches? I mean, it's like the reverse. If the world teaches one thing, you might as well look at the opposite. That's probably exactly where God is at. Jesus puts it this way Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Part of the life we discover. When we give our lives to Christ, it's freedom from a life of self-obsession. As such, we experience the joy of Christ and we become more accepting, more generous, and more loving of others. So when we die to self, we set aside our wants, our desires, and instead we focus on loving God, valuing others as highly as we value ourselves. This moves us away from self-centeredness and more open to being a follower of Christ who cares deeply for others. It's much easier to pay attention to the concerns and interests and needs of other people when we are no longer obsessed with our own interest. Dying to self is our path to preferring others. And it's not going to be something, that, I hate to tell you this, you're not going to gain victory over it. <laughs> but it's a sanctifying process. We're not born others-oriented. But the issue of dying to self is a process of of stripping away layers of sin that's encrusted with selfishness. That sanctifying process peels those layers off. And every time that we show preference for another believer, we peel another layer off and we become more like him. How does one die to self? It's no easy task. But a path of selfishness leads to Christ-likeness. As you and I, as we refuse to serve our own self-preferences, and we become wholly loyal to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, it will undoubtedly lead us to prefer others over ourselves, as Christ did. Inevitably, as you, draw cross, as you draw closer to Christ, you cannot but learn to show deference. Because that's what He did. Because as He shapes you into His image, that's what you will do. Remember that dying to self isn't the goal. Life is the goal. Carrying our cross is not the end of itself. Dying is the path to real living. You will find real living in serving others and preferring others and submitting your own desires and preferences to others. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusades for Christ, has this to say about dying to self. He says, Everyone I know who has been greatly used by God has gone through an experience of dying to self as described in Galatians two twenty. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He goes on to say that it is not only it is not until we know the reality of death, of death to self, that we can live for Christ, allowing God to truly use and bless us in the lives of others. On the end of this one illustration, I, I thought about this when I was asked to, to cover this topic. I share this. This one testimony, I shared this in chapel at TCS a year ago. This testimony is a testimony of a singer that passed away. His name is Keith Green. Keith Green's testimony, as you read it, was a man that was probably a little outside the box for most of you, but he had this zeal and passion and drive for Christ that moved many he was a type of believer that was all in for Christ the Christian music world was shocked to hear when he died suddenly from a plane accident at the age of 28 it was a small plane he asked the pilot if he could take his kids along with him Pilot agreed, and the plane actually was overloaded. And uh, as he took off from their strip, the wife watched the plane go down and burn. Josiah's four year old son was there, Bethany as well passed away in that plane crash. If you were to go to see his tombstone, this is his tombstone. Keith Green was buried in Lindell, Texas, small church, Garden Valley Baptist Church. On his tombstone is has John 12:24 where it says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. But the interesting part of the story for me was not Keith Green's tombstone, but the one next to his. The one next to his was an evangelist that poured his life into Keith Green, that influenced him. His name is Leonard... Ravenhill, an English Christian evangelist. A man, no one knows, but this is what he had on his, he passed away in 94, this is what he had on his tombstone. Are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? What a powerful statement. I can't help to think that some of the things that believers like myself, many times, things that we're fighting for, things that we're arguing over, things that we're even splitting over, things that we're dividing churches over, are not things worth Christ dying for. They're just not. And it's to our shame that we fight those battles. How about you? Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? May the Lord give us grace to prefer others over ourselves. And in doing so, we follow in the footsteps of our, in the footsteps of our Lord, being more and more like him. until so someday, we will be like him. That's what Christ died for. Let's close in word of prayer this evening. Father, I am always convicted as I read those first two chapters of Philippians and I read your word to the Philippian believers. What a task before us, Lord, to follow in your footsteps and die to self. Lord, I, I pray that this evening perhaps you would place in our on our heart, not an overwhelming response to you know how can I do this? But maybe one area in our lives where we've been not we've not been showing preference to others. Maybe you would just point out one area that someone here has been fighting for for a long time, and it'd be time for that person to let go of that. And that question that rings in my mind. Are the things that I'm living for worth Christ dying for? Lord, that the things I want to see the church united around, that we might be united around your truth and your gospel and your kingdom and your hope, and that the church might be united around those truths. Thank you, Lord, for bringing these passages back to my mind and heart. May our lives truly discover what it means to die to self. For it's in your name we commit these things to you. Amen.